Well, as I said just a moment ago, we are beginning, or we're in the, the early stages of the book of Genesis, and, and today we pick up chapter 2. Now, chapter 1, you'll recall from last week, was the big picture view of the whole creation story. And I won't go through all of that uh, this week, but it was kind of the, the big view. Today, Moses, as he writes this, is going to focus in on some of the finer details, some of the points that took place there in that first week. And so last week was the big picture, and this week we're going to look at some of the specifics as, as uh, we travel through this. We pick it up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and one of the things that we're going to find out in the first three verses is that the first three verses, as uh, we get into this, the first three verses are going to describe the last day of creation. Now last week we looked at the first six days of creation, and uh, this is the last day of creation. I'm not going to say too much about it, but let me say this. As you look at this, you go, you know, it seems that as you look at the last day of creation, why didn't they include it in chapter 1 as they were writing so you'd have the whole, all seven days of creation? Well, uh, many Bible scholars think that they should have. One of the things you may know, you may not know, is that when the Bible was written, it was not written with chapter and verse. As the writers would sit down, they didn't say, okay, here's the book of, and and then here's chapter 1, verse 1, and then they would begin. That's not how it happened. They just simply wrote as the Lord was giving it to them. It was nearly a thousand years after the Bible was completed, somewhere around in the 1100s AD, that somebody sat down and said, you know, it'd be sure a lot easier to find our way through the Bible if we we knew where to turn. So somebody went through and they wrote chapter 1, verse 1, and they did that about the time when that was becoming very popular. And it kind of stuck so that I could say, turn to chapter 2, we'll look at verse 1, everybody knows what I'm talking about, as opposed to just saying the book of Genesis and then beginning reading and nobody would know. So that was all added later. Now, what you do with that information, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's a little piece of information. Verse, verse 1. Thus the heavens, and I want you to underline the word heavens, notice it's plural, and the earth were completed all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. He, underlined rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had, which God had created and made. So there's the first three verses and there's the, the last part of uh, the creation story, the first seven days. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I asked you to underline the first word which was heavens. Did everybody see that? Did you notice that it was plural? Now, why is it plural? The Bible talks, when you talk about heaven, the Bible talks about three heavens. I'm not going to go into this, but just, just to let you know what it's talking about. When he says heavens in the plural, you'll find three different references to types of heavens. One heaven is simply where the birds fly, just kind of the, the, the atmosphere surrounding us. Another time it will refer to the heavens, and it's talking about where the stars are. It's kind of the heavens out there. And then the Bible talks about heaven as a place where God lives. And so in the New Testament, for those of you who've been around the Bible for some time, you'll know that Paul said, I was taken up to the third heaven. Why? Because in the Bible there's three. You have the atmosphere that we all live in, and then there's the stars, and then there is heaven where God lives. So when it says heavens, that's what it's talking to. But then notice in verse 2, it says, by the seventh day, God completed all his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work, which he had done. Now, when it says that God rested, he's not resting because he's tired. He's resting because he's, he's done. He's completed. It, it's all finished. So it's not that God needed to take a break, but God just says, you know, I'm done. And so there's nothing else to do. So 
when there's nothing to do, then, then I'm going to rest. Now, what I tell you this? Well, I want you to notice the word rested there on your outline. The word rested in the Hebrew is simply Shabbat. Say that, say Shabbat. And just so you feel like you said something Hebrew. So the word Shabbat just means to desist from exertion, just means to rest. Now, in Jewish culture, they take the last day and they call it the Sabbath, Sabbath. Or if you come from an Israeli background, you call it Shabbat, Shabbat. And, uh, and so it's interesting that the word Sabbath in the Hebrew is just Shabbat. Shabbat. And it comes from this word Shabbat, the Sabbath. And, and the idea is that the word Sabbath just means rested. That's what it means. So the seventh day is just simply a day of rest. It's a day that God has given to his people. And he said, I want you to take a day off. I want you to rest. It's something that I've blessed. And uh, as we travel through the Bible, we'll find that religious people took what God had given as a blessing and had turned it into a real piece of work in order to keep this day of rest. And one of the things that you'll find as you're around the church for any length of time, that you will find that religious people will take something that God gives as a blessing and they will somehow twist that blessing into something that's other than a blessing. For instance, in the New Testament, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you know, we're really struggling with how to pray. We want to know how to pray because we want to do this right. And so Jesus said, okay, well, I'll teach you how to pray. And they say, teach me, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus says, well, when you pray, here's what you do. You, you begin by saying, our Father who art in, hallowed be thy. Now, you, you, you've heard this, right? Now, Jesus gave that to be a blessing for the people because the people said, teach us how to pray. Religious people always take the blessing of God, something that God gave to be a blessing, and they twist it into something else. How do they twist it into something else? Anybody here ever been told to take that which God gave as a blessing and said to say it 25 times in order to pay for your sins? It was given as a blessing. Religious people twist it, and now it becomes something other than a blessing. That makes sense? Be, care, be careful when God gives something as a, blessing, as a blessing when religious people take it and they twist it. Well, we go on. Now, in the New Testament, the, the Jewish people, they began to worship on Saturday, which was the Sabbath, the seventh day. In the New Testament, Christians began to worship on Sunday. In the New Testament, the, the, it teaches that it's no longer the day that you worship on, but just that you worship. When the church began, it began in the town of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, as you would know, is a very Jewish community there 2,000 years ago. And as the new believers became believers, they were not allowed to meet in the temple. And so they couldn't really worship on Saturday. So they said to themselves, well, what day was Jesus raised on? Well, Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. So they said, well, we'll just worship on Sunday. And so they began to worship on Sunday. Now, this became somewhat of a problem in the early church because some people said, you've got to worship on Saturday. Saturday is the Sabbath. You'll even see that. You'll even see bumper stickers today that will say, the, you know, Saturday is the Sabbath. You know, you worship. Anybody seen a bumper sticker like that? I might have butchered what it says, but, but the idea is there'll be people even today who'll say, you need to worship on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And so this became an issue in the early church. 
And, uh, and so just, just notice that Paul, it became such an issue. Paul had to write, and Paul said this. Paul said, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And he who eats meat eats for the Lord. You know, you do this, you do that, you do it for the Lord. Either way, you're, you're honoring the Lord. So it's not really the day that you worship on now in the New Testament, but back in the Old Testament, they were very sabbath specific. Paul had to write this later on. Paul says in Colossians there in your outline, he says, therefore do not let anyone judge you. Now I'm going to read this list, but I want you to just don't even raise your hand. But uh, ask yourself, has anybody ever judged you by some of these things? So here we go. Um, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or Sabbath day. Anything in there where some wonderful religious person has kind of critiqued you and judged you? You can raise your hand now. The thing that Paul says, don't let anybody judge you, is the one thing that typically we find ourselves being judged. Days of celebration, things that we eat or drink, and things of that nature. Well, the Bible talks about some parameters in those things. Well, verses 1 through 3 complete the, the first week of creation. And uh, so we pick it up in verses 4 through 6 as our story begins today. This is the account, verse 4, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet been sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain, underlined, had not sent rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground, but... Underline, a mist used to rise from the earth and the water and, uh, and water the whole face of the earth. Now, this is going to go on uh, until the time of Noah. We'll look at that when we get to chapter 6. But apparently, there was a built-in sprinkler system. And I, again, to even talk about that, I'd have to go back the next, last week and get the CD. And we're, we're going to move on. It kills me to do this. Verse 7. Again, our story begins. Then, verse 7. The Lord formed, and I want you to underline man. The Lord formed man out of the, and underline, dust from the ground and breathe in, into his nostril, nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now, that verse is sort of the key that unlocks the rest of the chapter. And so I want you to look at it there on your outline as we, as we kind of get into the chapter today. Notice it says on the outline, the Lord God formed man. The word man in the Hebrew is simply the word in the Hebrew is just Adam, 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 we would say. Everybody see that? So when you say man in the Old Testament, the word for man is just Adam or Adam, as we would say. Later on, we're going to call this man Adam, but it's just the word for man in the Old Testament. And notice it says that man, or that God formed man, Adam, from dust, and the word dust in the Hebrew is just Adama, Adama. And so the idea is that man, Adam, was formed from Adama. It's a play on words. Literally, in the English, the way this would work is this, if we were to say God formed, we would not call him man. He comes from dust. We would simply call him dusty. That would be sort of like a, you know, just a, a name, a nickname. And so it's kind of a nickname that God uses. So we say Adam, but literally it's, it's probably more accurately appro- uh, um, translated as dusty. So God formed Adam, or man, out of Adama, or dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. So, 
Science tells us that we are actually made, our bodies are composed, out of the very same things that you would take out of the ground, the dust of the ground. You've heard this, right? It's interesting that science has discovered this, although God wrote it 6,000 years ago. So, now, a couple of other things. I'm going to, I'm going to um, skip over the next couple of verses there on your outline and then uh, keep moving. We might come back to that if we have time. But in verse 7, notice he says, Then the Lord formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. It's interesting to me that God goes out of his way several times in this verse to let us know that this is something that God did. That the only way that this took place is that God had to breathe the breath of life so that man could become a living being. Did you guys see that as I read through it? Now, it's interesting to me how God goes out of his way to make sure that we don't miss it. Why why is that so important? Well, if you're like me and come from a secular educational background... The typical story is that about 15 billion years ago, when the universe was created, a few hundred million years after that, um, in what was called the primordial ooze. How many of you ever heard of the primordial ooze? Now, here's the primordial ooze. In this ooze, as the earth was cooling, there were pockets of water. In these pockets of water, there were all of the components that would be needed in order for life to be created, which would be true because the Bible says that we're created out of the dust, so that part would be true. We would probably all be there in that primordial ooze if, in fact, there was a primordial ooze, which there wasn't. But if we were, and let's just say that we were, here's the idea. There in this primordial ooze, there was all of the components for life, and somehow, someway, in this water, in this ooze, there was just the right components, and somehow, someway, there was an electrical current, some people believe, a lightning strike that was close enough, and here's what happened. Somehow, because all of the parts were in the right place, all of this somehow miraculously uh, became, and this is what evolutionists will call the, the miracle of evolution, all of this became a living being, somehow, some way. All the parts were there, the electricity was there, and, and, it, and it came to life. Now, the beauty of this, not only did it come to life, this is what's so great about this, is it came to life and it had the ability to take in food, which there was none yet, but it had the ability to take in food. And not only could it take in food, but it was also able to reproduce itself. And that's why you and I are here today. And it's called the miracle of evolution. Now, what's so interesting, when you talk to somebody who teaches on the miracle of evolution, you say, well, do you believe in the miracles of Jesus? I say, no, we don't really believe that. So why not? And say, well, because we don't believe in miracles. <laughs> Let me tell you, evolution is a big miracle. It's not true. So anyways, going on, going on from there. Now, we begin the story part of what we're doing. And God in this, in this part is going to begin to let us know his heart and how he sees things and what he thinks about his creation. And in verse 8, I want you to underline a couple of things as we go through here. We're going to find out who's actually in charge. Verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted, underline that, a garden towards the east in Eden. And there he placed the man, or he placed Adam, literally, from whom he had formed, see, God's kind of doing it all, out of the ground, out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow, underline that, every tree that is, and I want you to underline, pleasing to the sight and good for food. 
The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of, not, of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the first thing that you notice is that God's kind of doing it all. As a matter of fact, he's going out of his way to let us know God's doing it. God's causing it to grow. God's doing it. God's placing Adam in the garden. This is what God is doing. But in verse 9, I had you underline, it says that he placed every tree that is, and I had you underline, pleasing to the sight and good for food. Pleasing to the sight and is good for food. Now, I, I find this interesting because... Maybe you're like me. One of the things that I grew up with is somehow thinking that God created, and if I was in, in Sunday school, they'd say, does God love you? And we'd all say, yes, God loves us. But, but really, we'd go through our, life, our lives thinking that, God, you, you really don't love me. I mean, I, I look around the room, and I go, it's easy for God to love you, and God to love you, and God to love you. And, 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 you know, but, but I would say, God, I, I, I have a hard time accepting that you love me. There are some people who have it so deep in their mind that God created the heavens and the earth and created man just so he could ruin their life. And and you'll hear this, but I want you to see something in creation. That it says that God created, and and it's there in your outline, caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Now in this, God reveals his heart to man. It's important because many times we see God as angry. Notice it says it was pleasing to the sight. God gave man eyes, and giving man eyes to see, God in his creation said, you know what I want to do? I, I want to create things that, that, that as man looks at them, he says, I just like looking at I mean, I, I just love this, this tree and these mountains. And God says, I gave it to be appealing to the sight. It's also interesting, as we travel through the book of Genesis, we're going to find that God is going to give wives to certain men as we go. One of the first things it's going to say is that, and they were very beautiful. It's interesting that God wired us to embrace beauty, but God also said, but let me create beauty because you're going to like this a whole lot. Now, would that tell me that God likes us or he doesn't like us? I mean, if God didn't like us, he'd create the earth and give us eyes to see, but he'd create everything so it'd be gray, like Chicago, just gray, just kind of gray. But he didn't do that. He created things to be beautiful. But then also you notice it says that he gave uh, food or, or the plants that were good for food. That is, they tasted great. And I love that because God, in creating man, chose to give us a tongue. And with that tongue, he gave us taste buds cool thing. And, and with these taste buds, God said, not only am I going to give you taste buds, but I want to give you stuff that's going to just, you're just going to, it's just going to be good to the taste, right? Ladies, chocolate, huh? Am I talking to the right crowd? And so God, and now if God didn't love us, he would have created us with tongues that had no taste buds. If God didn't love us, he might have given us a tongue with taste buds, but just had little pills growing on the trees. Pills, here's the nourishment tree, eat it. No enjoyment whatsoever. But God loved us. God loved his creation. And God was thinking about how he could bless his creation when creation wasn't thinking about God. Same way, parents, you're thinking about the ways you can bless your kids, and they're not always thinking about ways they can bless you. I may be alone in this. Well, verse 10. Verse 10, it says, Now a river flowed out of Eden to the water, to the garden, and from there it it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And if you find that land, let me know. Because we don't know where that is. And the gold of the land is good. The bedellum and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. And it flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows around Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
is the Euphrates. So here, here's the idea. This is the description of the Garden of Eden before the flood of Noah, which we'll talk about when we come to Genesis chapter 6. So this is the description before the flood of Noah. A lot has changed since that flood. What's changed? Well, first of all, we know about the Euphrates and the Tigris, but we don't know about the other, other rivers. We don't know what happened, but something happened in that flood. But the idea that, that is being conveyed in this is in this garden where God placed man, God provided everything. He provided water to, to water the plants going through the garden and around the garden. So once again, we're seeing that God's heart is good towards his creation. Now, verse 15. Notice it says, Then the Lord God took the man. Who's the man? The word is just simply Adam. And put him, now I want you to put, took the man and put him, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Underline, cultivate and keep it. Cultivate and keep it. First thing you need to get out of this is that man was placed in the garden. And this is something that, uh, that many people miss. But man was placed in the garden for recreation, not vocation. Now write that down. Now why is that so important? Later on, as, as God put man into the garden, the idea was that God created man with this need to be creative, being created in the image of God. So man has this need to be creative. So God creates this garden. He's planted the garden. He's putting everything there. He's put the rivers there. And he says, okay, man, I'm putting you. Adam, I'm putting you in the garden. Now, is it because he's afraid that the garden's going to fall apart? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I, I truly believe that God has placed man in the garden for recreation as more of a creative outlet. Now, why do I believe that? Because we're going to find in the next chapter some things are going to be dramatically different. When those things become dramatically different, it's the first time that we find that God says, you know what, Adam, man, you're now going to have to work. That wasn't really part of your existence in the garden. And God's going to take several verses to talk about what work is going to mean, which would be very different than what God put in the garden for man to do. Notice what it says there in your outline. It says, and God will tell man in the next chapter, he will say, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. So things are going to be very different. But up to this point, God's doing all the planting, God's doing all the watering, God's taking care of things, and he just puts man there. Now, man, you be creative. You just do what you think is best. You want to move some things around. You have that creative spark inside of you, so, so do something with it. You know, create, you know, enjoy. That's the idea. Does that make sense so far? Okay, good. Now, another thing you want to, to notice here in verse 15 and in this chapter, is that God wants to do something very specifically in Adam's life or man's life. And uh, the first thing, uh, the next thing that we notice is that God has placed Adam in just the right place. Now write that down. He's placed Adam in just the right place. Well, notice in verse 15, he says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden. Something very specific. But I also want you to notice all the way back in verse 8. In verse 8, God had already told us, he says, the Lord God planted a garden towards the east of Eden where he placed the man. Everybody see that? He placed the man. One of the things that you find in the Bible is that when God tells you something once, you say, okay, God's telling me something. When God tells you something twice, he's telling you something because he's saying, don't miss this. I'm going to put it here and I'm going to put it here so you don't miss this. Here's what I want to say. God has placed man exactly in the place that he needs to be. 
And God wants us to know that God has placed Adam in just the right place that he needs to be in order to accomplish what it is that God is going to want to do in the life of Adam. Does that make sense so far? Now, because God has placed him in just the right place, would it be right for Adam to seek out another garden or to stay in the garden that God has placed him? Like you mean it. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, now tuck that away. So God, God has specifically put Adam in the garden. He's told us twice, Adam, I put you in the garden, and this is where I want you to stay. Adam, when things aren't working out, it's not for you to go find another garden because what I'm going to do is going to be in the context of this garden. So let's see how it goes. Also, I want you to notice as a, in verse 15 that God has a specific plan for Adam. You might want to write that down. God has a specific plan. In verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took Adam and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. So he says, you know, Adam, I've got a a plan for you, and there's something that I want you to do. I've specifically placed you in this garden because of what I want to do. And in this garden, there's a plan for you. And uh, the reason I say that is because God has a plan for each and every person since Adam. Since Adam. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says the Lord has made everything for its own purpose. God has a plan for Adam. God has a plan for us. And we're going somewhere with this. Now, another observation that I'm going to make here, and uh, you tell me if you think this is true. Um, At this point, Adam is single. What do you think? Absolutely. He's single. Not a trick question. Adam is single at this place, and God has placed him in a garden, and God has a certain something that he wants him to do, but Adam is single. So that's important for our study. So God has placed him in just the right place. He's even told us two times that he placed us, and we also see that God has a plan. Adam, there's something I want you to do. Now, in God's plan, God's plan is going to involve, and you want to write this down, God's plan is going to involve obedience to God's word. Obedience to God's word. Notice verse 16. The Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now notice this is what God is speaking to man. He says you can eat from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. You shall surely die. So, um, that's, you know, that's... Part of God's plan. Um, You've got to be obedient to what I'm saying. And uh, I also want you to notice that um, he says, you know, if you eat this, um, you're going to die. And we, we all just read that. But there in your outline, I want you to write this down. This is very important. That I want you to notice that when it comes to eating forbidden fruit, God doesn't say, if you eat it, I will kill you. That's not what he said. Now, we think that when we blow it and we sin, has anybody here ever sinned? Am I the only one? Okay. All right, we, we tend to think that when we blow it, that, that God's going to track us down and he's going to let us have it. And, there, there's, and many of us, there's that, that sense, and that's why we, we run away from God when we blow it, because we think to run to him, he's going to, you know, and we're, we're done. And, uh, and yet, that's, that's just the opposite. You know, he's not the Godfather, because that's what the Godfather does. He's God the Father. It's a very different thing. Very different thing. And so, but many times we relate to God as though he is the Godfather. And God doesn't say, if, if you eat this, I will kill you. But God is warning Adam. 
He's warning man of the danger that's contained in this fruit. And, and the idea is apparently there was in this fruit something that if man were to take of this fruit, by taking this fruit, it would cause man to begin the decaying process. It would cause man the dying process, as, as we see and we'll see in the next chapter. But God isn't saying, if you eat this, I will kill you. He's just saying, if you eat this, this will kill you. It's sort of like if I tell my kids, children, you shall not play football on I-95, for in the day that you play thereof, you shall surely die. Now, does that mean that I'm sitting there with my car on the side of the road going, okay, you just try it. You just try it. You know, I I would never do that. I would never do that because I I love my kids. But would I warn my kids about the danger of playing on I-95? Absolutely. The danger is in playing an I-95. The danger is not me saying, if you do that, I will run you over. That's, I would never do that. But, but uh, I thought about it. But, but I would never do that. I would never do that. And, and so God is not saying, if you do this, I will do this. Now you say, okay, well, so, so God, why did you put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that will lead to death ultimately there in the garden? You ever wonder that? I have no reason why. So, no, here, here's what's going on. God wants to have a loving relationship with each and every person. But you have to choose. Do you want this relationship with him or do you not want it? You see, apart from a choice, it's not really love. Ten years ago, when Cheryl and I were first married, and you know, we dated for a year before that, at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, there were a lot of guys interested in my wife. As there were, you know, they would call her on the phone. One guy moved down from Michigan because he thought she was the one. <laughs> so in... <laughs> kidding. And, and so, but there were a lot of guys interested in my wife. As a matter of fact, when we first started dating, there was a guy in leadership who came to me and said, it is not right for you to start dating Cheryl because God has told me that she's to be my wife. And, and you know, God didn't tell me the same thing. But, but the thing is this, out of all of those guys, and there were a lot of guys who were interested in her, that out of all of those guys, she chose me. She chose me. And you know what that does for me? makes me feel pretty good. Because I, I look at her and I go, how did you ever decide to marry me? And, and, and she did. You know, I don't, I don't know, mental illness. I don't know, but she did. And, and, and here's the thing. If I were the only guy on the face of the earth, and she were to look at me and go, okay, not really any other option. Well, it might be great for a while, but the thing is, I would always want, do you love me? Or am I just, you know, you, you can't do any better than this, apparently. And, and yet, when there's options, then the choice is made, and love is always a choice. And in the absence of a choice, it's not really love. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide the garden. I'm going to plant all the trees. I'm going to put rivers through it. You don't have to do any work. You just be creative, have some fun, rock and roll, dig some hills, dig some, you know, whatever you want to do. You just, you just go for it. And, and, and yet, but here's the thing, because I want to know if you really love me. I'm going to put this tree over here, but I want you to know, don't eat this tree because it's not good for you. And so what will man ultimately do? Well, we'll pick it up there in chapter three of next week, but uh, we'll, we'll continue on here. So, um, so that makes sense? Verse 18. So Adam's there, he's in the garden, things are cooking along, and um, we we realize that, um, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said, I want you to know who's saying this, It is not good for the man, Adam, to be alone. I want you to underline the word alone. And he says, I will, I want you to underline, I will make a helper suitable for him. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, 
If you're single here today, here's what I want you to realize. The first thing that we notice in this verse. First of all, the one who recognizes Adam's need first is God. Even before Adam knows that he has a need. So the first one to recognize man's need or Adam's need is God. There on your outline, I've placed that verse. And I want to just highlight a couple of things as we go through to give a little bit of understanding. It says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Do you see that? What's so interesting to me is that the Hebrew word for alone is simply spelled B-A-D. It's bad. Isn't that neat? So God looks on at a guy being alone and he says, this is not good. It's bad. It's bad. So if you're wondering here today, you go, you know, I'm single and I don't think God ever wants me to get married. I'm never going to meet it. Just know God's already looked at your situation and he says, this isn't the best. There's, there's more to come. You know, this is bad. And you know it's bad because you have that look in your eye. So But then I want you to notice that he says, I will make a, and I put it there in the King James Version, he says, I will make a help or and help meet for him. Now, the reason it's two words in the King James, some of your other translations will say, I'll make a helper for him, but it's two Hebrew words. And in the the King James, they translate the two Hebrew words, but they translate kind of awkwardly. So um, God looks down and he says, you know, man has a problem, he's alone, and that's bad. And, 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 uh, and he says, I want to do something about it. So he says, I'm going to create what the King James translates as a help meet. What does help meet? Well, it's the combination of two Hebrew words. Help is ezer from the Hebrew. That comes from a, a word that's actually built upon another word where there's the root. So here, here's the me- meaning, and I want you to underline this. It comes from the word azar, which is a primitive root word. And it just means to surround and protect. Now, underline protect. Ladies, God knows that this man needs somebody in his life because he needs some protection. Adam needs some protection. We'll see how that works. Then the word meet translates into English. The the Hebrew word just means counterpart or mate. Counterpart or mate. So God looks on and he says, okay, I need to create for Adam a counterpart, a mate, that will be protection, that will be surrounding him, protection for him. Apparently there's a need in Adam's life. Bible scholars, as they put this word together, one of the words that comes up, as, as they, they say, the word seems to imply that Adam, as this help meet comes together, it implies a rescue. And the idea, Bible scholars tell us, that the word help meet implies that God says, I am creating a rescuer for Adam. And that's kind of the the idea. So, now, why, ladies, you might say, why does Adam need to be rescued? Okay? Why does Adam need to be rescued? Well, one very uh, simple thing, you do with this what you want, but in verse 21, we're going to see, and I've put it there in your outline, uh, we're going to find out that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, then he takes one of his ribs. Everybody see that? It could be that that, uh, God... uh, sees that man needs to be rescued because, you might want to write this all, all down, but it could be that he needs to be rescued because he's not all there. Some think that that's a stretch, but ladies, in your observation, would this be true? So by empirical evidence alone, this appears to be true. Am I right on this or wrong? Okay, good. 
All righty. Now, you say, well, how do you need to be rescued? How do you need to be rescued? Guys, a little self-disclosure. Before I was married, um, and we just celebrated 10 years, uh, when Cheryl came over to my apartment one time, she saw my bed. Now, my bed, before I got married, because I really didn't care about beds, because I wasn't going to spend money on a bed when there was dive gear to be purchased, because you have to have your priorities straight. And so she comes over, and she sees my, my apartment where I'm living, and she sees my bed. My bed was a secondhand mattress on the floor. There was a sheet over the bed, and there was a blanket over the sheet. There was a pillow. Now, the sheet would be washed annually, whether it needed it or not. (laughs) Cheryl looked into this situation and she said, I need to rescue you. Now, there is a wood frame, king-size bed with the box spring underneath. There is the mattress on top. There is the mattress protector, not the plastic one, but there's a mattress protector... There's a sheet over the mattress protector. There's a sheet over the sheet. There's a comforter over the sheet. And then there's 300 pillows at the edge of the bed. And every night before bed, we remove the pillows. It's like this. And one teddy bear named Joey. So, so... Now, I look at this, and I look at my life back when it was just the mattress on the floor or the bed with the 300 pillows. Guys, I've been rescued. But I would never do that for me. But I love it. I love it. You see, I've been rescued. And and it took a woman, a very special woman, in order to do that. Does that make sense? So man needs to be rescued. But also, he says, man and woman together, you might want to write this down, are in the image of God, in the image of God. God created man in his own image, there from the last chapter on your outline. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, here's what he's saying. Man and woman coming together give a more complete image of God. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You have three in one. You have man you have woman, and then you have the Godhead creating sort of like a trinity. Why why is that important? You see, I'm a guy. We have these seven children. It's been wonderful. But Cheryl's very much a woman. So this week, we're we're there out on our driveway, and our kids are learning to ride their bikes, and they got their little scooters. And Noah's zooming along in his scooter. He's supposed to be wearing shoes, which his mom says, Noah looks at me, and, you know, and uh, you know, I don't really care if he wears shoes, you know, but, but mommy says he wears shoes, so he's going. And he's zooming along, and he hits something, and he trips, and he does this flip. I think it's really cool, but there's blood everywhere. He's scabbed, you know. His arm's kind of hanging off. He's got a couple of tendons just barely dangling, you know. And, and he jumps up and he's crying. And I'm like, wait, a little bit of blood. You're okay. It's, it's fine. Come on over here. And Cheryl's like, honey, he, he can't walk. He's got a broken leg. And, and, and he doesn't. He doesn't. But, but, but the idea is there's blood everywhere. And I'm like going, so there's blood everywhere. And she's, and she's like, shouldn't we clean it up? I'm like, no, no, let it bleed. It'll get all the impurities out that way. Just let it bleed a little bit. And Noah's like, but I want a Band-Aid. Well, mommy says, go get a Band-Aid. And so, so I'm, I'm very masculine with my boys. I just, you know... It doesn't bother me if they get hurt as part of being a boy. But Cheryl, on the other hand, she's she's very maternal. And yet together, we represent to our children the image of God. You see, there's times in the Bible when God is very compassionate and caring. 
Yet there's other times in the Bible when God is very stern and he's very strong. And so God calls man and woman to be together with very different attributes and traits and characteristics in order to be a complete representation of God to our children and to society. That makes sense? So we zoom along. So he says, man is alone and that's bad. Now, single people here today, just let me say one thing. Uh, There's only one thing worse than being alone. And that is being with somebody and still being very much alone. And if you're here today and you're single, let me say one thing. It's better to be with the right one for a short time than the wrong one for a long time. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Don't you dare. So, so um, but, but I, you, know, you might be nodding your head. So anyways, so, so because being alone is bad, verse 18, he says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Notice he says, I will. Make a helper suitable for him. So notice that God says that he will fix the problem. He will fix the problem. And yet Adam at this point doesn't realize that he even has a need. And and it's a need that it's not even for Adam to fix. God says, I'm going to take care of that. Don't even worry about that. So now God is going to begin to reveal to Adam his need for this help meet to come into his life. And so we pick it up in verse 19. God has already said, Adam, you have a need. You don't even know what you have a need. I'm going to fix the need. But before I fix the need, I'm going to reveal to you that you have a need. So verse 19. So he says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man. Now, underline, brought them to the man. What's he bringing? He's bringing options to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Then the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there, it, there was not found a, underline this, helper suitable for him. Now, here, here's what's going on. God says, okay, Adam, here you are, and, and you're, I'm going to bring all the animals. I'm actually bringing all the animals by you. And so as I bring the animals, you go ahead and name them. So Adam, here they come. He goes, okay, that'll be Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. We'll call them Elephant. Very cool. There they go. Mr. and Mrs cow. There you go. So that's what you want to call them. That's what we'll call them. Mr. and Mrs. Cheetah. Mr. and Mrs. Orangutan. Mr. and Mrs. Gorilla. And as this is going by, all of a sudden, Adam begins to say, you know, there's a lot of Mr. and Mrs. going on here. And not only is there a lot of Mr. and Mrs. going, it's the whole male-female thing, but here, here's what I'm noticing, is, is that uh, there's, there's no Mr. Mrs. Adam. There's only Mr. Adam. And God, I, I want to have an Adam's family. How, how, how do I? So, so what, what do I need to do, God? Because all of a sudden, you're showing me that there's a need that I didn't even recognize. But you also notice that God was working on the need before, God even, before Adam even realizes that he has a need. So, then you notice that options are coming by. Here's an option. Verse 19, it says, God brought. And as God continues to bring by, Adam is naming these, and uh, all to reveal that Adam has a need for somebody in his life. Now, at this time, I believe, and there might be a different interpretation, but I believe that Adam is hanging out with some of his friends. He's hanging out with the gorillas and and, uh, some of the orangutans and some of the monkeys, kind of a guy's night out, and they're kind of talking, 
And they're saying, you know, Adam, you know, you seem so alone, you know, and that's cool. And Adam's going, I know, I haven't, you know, I haven't, you know, there, I can't seem to find a Mrs. Adam anywhere. And I think what's taking place is some of his friends, in a very well-meaning way, are trying to set Adam up with various options that have come by. That's what I think. And, and, and I, I, could, I could guess that, that maybe Adam's having this conversation where like one of the guys, maybe it's the gorilla, and he's going, Adam, come on, have you checked out Miss, um, Miss Ostrich? Have you seen her? I mean, she's got long legs. She's got these big eyes. You know, have you seen? Come on, that could work. You know, you're kind of an upright kind of guy, and she's kind of upright. She's got the big eyes, and Adam's probably saying, you know, it's just, I don't, it just doesn't feel right. You know, you try to talk to her, and she's got like this, this idiosyncrasy about her. It just rubs me the wrong way. What is it? Well, like you talk to her and she starts pecking at stuff, you know? And you're like, I just, I, you know, it's just, it's one, it's not a big thing that just kind of drives me nuts. You know, you're talking peck, peck, peck. And he's like, I don't like that. Well, then one of the other guys goes, well, have you checked out Miss Cheetah? And Adam goes, you know, she's just not my type. You know, she's very racy and, and she's always wearing that outfit, you know? And it's just, ah, you know, and, and that's cool, you know, on occasion, but it's just, I don't know that I could really live with that. You know, when I think about long term, it just doesn't seem to be a fit. And it could be at this time that Adam begins to think, well, maybe I should start checking out another garden. Because you see, God's not really doing it in this garden. Maybe I should check out another garden. But where's God placed Adam? In this garden. Who placed him here? God. So if God's placed Adam in this garden, then God wants to fulfill his role, his mission, his plan in the context of this garden. So what does Adam do? I want you to just notice in this time where Adam is waiting, um, and I'm not going to be able to talk about this too much just because we're running out of time, but, but notice three things that Adam does. Number one, Adam fulfills his responsibility while he's waiting on God to create Mrs. Adam. He fulfills his responsibility. Verse 19 says, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So Adam is fulfilling his responsibility. He's naming the animals. Number two, he is maintaining his moral integrity. Notice in verse 17, he talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. Here in this chapter, while God's waiting, where Adam is waiting on God, he's not violating his moral integrity. He's following the Lord. And then number three, we'll pick it up in verse 21. It says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And when he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The next thing you notice that Adam does is he simply goes to sleep. He goes to sleep. He's not going to another garden. He says, I'm not really going to settle for less. I'm not going to go out with Miss Ostrich and Miss Cheetah. You know, he just simply goes to sleep. Now, why is that so important? If you're single here today, or maybe something's not happening in your life, this is the truth about God. God does great things when we rest in him. When we, as the Bible says, we sleep. Notice what it says. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. The Bible is filled with stories, and we will see as we travel through Genesis, of those who got much more than they ever asked because they trusted God, they waited a little bit longer, and God blessed above and beyond anything they could ever ask, hope, or imagine. So then, verse 22. The Lord God fashioned, underline that, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and, underline, brought her to the man. Brought her to the man. Now here's what's going on, especially if you're single. 
singles. While Adam was resting, God was working on his mate. While Adam was resting, God was working on his mate. The next thing I would want to point out, this isn't on your outline, but you might want to write it down. In verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs. While the man was resting, while the man was sleeping, God was doing a work inside the man. God looked at Adam, and he says, I'm preparing your mate, but Adam, and he gives us a very literal illustration. Adam, I need to reach inside of you, and I need to remove something. And it's interesting that when this something is removed, what happens? The mate appears. Singles, as you're here today, as you are resting, let God do his work in you. Sometimes that work might, remove, might be removing something from you as he's preparing the mate for you and preparing you for that right person going on. And then the next thing that you notice is that in verse 22, it says, The Lord God fashioned the woman from the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man at the right time. When God had done his work in the mate, when God had done his work in Adam, at the right time, God brought, it says there in your verse, it says, God brought her to the man. So here's the thing. The answer was not settling for an ostrich or a cheetah. The answer was not going to another garden because it wasn't happening in this garden. The answer was was resting in the Lord and allowing God to do his work, and in Adam's case, some surgery, and then God brought the right person at the right time. Does that make sense? And I don't think I've stretched it at all. Now, very quickly, let's, let's, uh, let's go on, because maybe, maybe the answer is just going to sleep and letting God do his work. Cheryl and I just celebrated 10 years of marriage. I can't imagine being a pastor of this church and having these seven children with any other woman. I'm so glad that I waited till I, for me, 35, uh, before we actually got married. But God was doing a work in me. He was doing a work in her. And God worked it out, and then he brought us together. So God brings the right woman. Adam responds to this, and the man said, and, uh, you know, it says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. And it was one of those things, Adam sees this woman, and he doesn't really know what to say. So he just starts talking. So that's my view. Verse 24, he says, no, it's a cool thing, but it's... uh, Verse 24, this reason the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall be called one flesh. Two come together, they become one flesh. They're a complete, more complete representation of God. And here's the idea. Even Moses says, guys, when you get married, you leave your family of origin, you create a new family, and when times get tough, you don't run back. Parents, don't let them run back when times get tough. So, has anybody here ever had a tough first year of marriage? Oh, I'm the only one. So, so then, verse 25, we wrap it up with this. Um, 
it says, and the man and his wife were both naked before, they were naked and were not ashamed. And um, every nudist colony in America has this verse somewhere, and they say, see, it's there in the Bible, it's in the book of Genesis, they were naked and not ashamed, but I'll have you know that things are very different since the Garden of Eden, and we'll pick that up in chapter 3 of next week.